This podcast is supported by an unrestricted education grant by Medtronic. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Peake. Today, we're going to be talking about patient ventilator desynchronies and their mechanisms. I'm joined by Dr. Laurent Brochard. He is Interdepartmental Division Director of Critical Care at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Brochard. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be with you today. Wonderful. And before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? I do have research grants from different companies, for instance, Medtronic, Covidian, and Drager. And I also get some equipment from other companies like Sentech and uh, Fisher-Pekel. Excellent. Thank you so much. And before we begin, I just want to make certain we're clear on learning objectives. The first one is to explore the different mechanisms of the various patient ventilator dyssynchronies. The second, review how to detect these dyssynchronies. And third, evaluate the possible impact of these dyssynchronies on patient-centered outcomes. This podcast is very much needed because we need to understand the different mechanisms of the various patient ventilator dyssynchronies and also identify the possible impact of these dyssynchronies on patient-centered outcomes. By history, the prevalence and consequences of asynchronies may be largely underestimated. And why is that? It's because of frequent lack of monitoring. We need dedicated software solutions that can continuously and automatically detect asynchronies. And this allows for both clinical research and clinical applications aimed at determining the effects of asynchronies and minimizing their incidence among critically ill patients. Why should we care about this issue of dyssynchrony, Dr. Brochard? Well, thank you for this question. This is a fascinating field because this is something we progressively discovered by looking at the waveforms on the ventilator screen. And this is where is the paradox. The desynchrony are visible on the screen if you pay attention and if you think about how it should be normally, but it, they are not analyzed by the ventilators. So nothing on the ventilator usually tells you that this kind of desynchrony or this kind of desynchrony. Of course, you can have alarms because the pressure goes up too much or because some volumes are abnormal, but very often the desynchrony are just there and not displayed explicitly. So we need to learn about it, and I think it's important for two reasons. One is because some of these desynchrony may be harmful for the patient. For instance, something obvious is the Patients have having a lot of double triggering, which means instead of receiving breath of, let's say, 6 ml per kilogram of predicted body weight, the patient is receiving 12 ml or even sometimes 18 ml. So it makes sense that this will be harmful for the patients because you don't deliver any more lung protective ventilation. But the other reason why it's important to detect and prevent this asynchrony is because very often it indicates 
that the dose of ventilation given to the patient is not adapted to the patient's needs. What I mean is that there are specific asynchrony which indicate that your patient is overventilated. And this is at this point that the patient develops this type of asynchrony. Other asynchrony indicate the opposite, that the patient is not assisted well enough. And it may be because you don't give enough support, or it may be simply because the patient's respiratory drive is so high that these patients will need sedation. So this is important because it tells you you're not giving the good amount of ventilation and the management should be adapted to the mechanism. It will be completely different if the desynchrony is related to excessive ventilation or to insufficient ventilation. Interesting. And I'm just wondering as you speak, is there a patient profile that has a greater risk of having asynchrony? I'm thinking right off the bat of, say, for instance, someone who is obese, where you have a large abdomen and you have greater pressure for the diaphragm to work. Is that one example? Well, that's interesting. In fact, the the way I try to describe it is more about when does it take place. And in fact, you have three moments, three times in the ICU. The first one is when the patient is still sedated, you have a very specific asynchrony called reverse triggering. This is something we did not notice for many years, and it's related to entrainment of the respiratory muscle by the ventilator. So it's really interesting because it happens in patients who are quite deeply sedated, maybe not the very, very, very deep sedation, but still uh, well sedated. They do not seem to trigger the ventilator, but they do have entrainment by the ventilator and they have a contraction of their diaphragm after each mechanical cycle or every other cycle or one over three, something like that. It's not always completely regular. And therefore, the contraction of the diaphragm occurs at the end of the insufflation or even during the expiration. And this is one of the causes of double cycling because at that time, the patient can trigger a second breath. If you see the screen, you would see that the first breath is a mandatory breath, but the second one is triggered by the patient. So this kind of asynchrony occurs at the early phase during uh, sedation And very often when we start to switch from deep sedation to trying to resume spontaneous breathing. The second time where you can see asynchrony is when patients are assisted by the ventilator. So it means they are triggering the ventilator, but they have a very high respiratory drive. Okay, so that would be patients who have ARDS, they have been sedated but not paralyzed. They have really bad lung and maybe gas exchange is corrected, but still they are trying to get a lot of volume and flow. So they they may have this type of flow hunger we describe as flow desynchrony, if you wish, but they they may have also short cycling because we tend to give now small volumes with relatively short inspiratory time, so they may want more. And this is also the occasion where these patients may have double triggering. So they trigger the first breath and they trigger a second breath. So that's a different circumstance. That's not a patient deeply sedated. That's a patient who 
with breathing, with assisting the ventilator, but with a very high respiratory drive. Excellent. What's the third one? The third one is the one which has been described initially where patients are a little bit in a a later phase. They are on pressure support ventilation. It may be some other mode, but it has been mostly described with pressure support ventilation. And pressure support is a very nice way to assist patients, but it's very easy with pressure support to give too much pressure. And too much pressure will mean too much volume and long inspiratory time. And these patients will be completely different from the preceding ones which I described, the patient with high drive, these patients with very low respiratory drive. So like very often tend to be sleepy, not struggling against the ventilator, but they will have a lot of missing efforts. So it will be small efforts during the expiratory time which do not trigger the ventilator, which mean that the respiratory rate on the ventilator will be usually low, like... uh, 15 to 20 breaths per minute, while their own respiratory rate may be 30, 35. And they are comfortable with that, but maybe half of their efforts are not triggering the ventilator. And the reason in that case is that too much support is given to these patients. Interesting. This is incredibly clear. And I have a very interesting question related to COVID. Do you see anything specific or unique to the COVID patient who is placed on a respirator? I would say we see a a huge number of episodes of reverse triggering, really huge. And I think we tend to give a lot of sedation to these patients for good and bad reason. The good reason being to make the patient comfortable. The bad reason is that we want absolutely to be sure that the patient is not moving. So we give a lot of sedation. And when we start resuming spontaneous breathing by decreasing sedation, we see a lot of this reverse triggering. And a lot of colleagues calling me saying, what can we do at that time? And that's a difficult call because what it means when you see this reverse triggering is that the patient is in a kind of transition between the sedation phase and resuming spontaneous breathing. So I think the best solution when it's possible is to continue to stop sedation and wait until the patient will be able to completely trigger the ventilator. For instance, you can decrease the mandatory rate, decrease sedation, and then the patient will be able to take the control of the vent. Of course, the issue at that time is whether the patient will have a reasonable respiratory drive or whether the patient will go into huge efforts and excessive efforts. So that's where it is complicated. And also, I would think with COVID, you have significant lung damage and a tremendous inflammatory response. And so there, one would imagine, your thoughts on this, to pay particular attention to the amount of pressure that is being utilized so as not to increase the amount of damage. That's a very good point, and that's where the job of the clinician is really complicated because on the one side, you don't want to keep this patient too long on the vent for many reasons, 
and you want to resume spontaneous breathing, which has good effect, but you're also worried that patients waking up with a very high respiratory drive may add their own breathing effort to the pressure delivered by the ventilator, and the total may be a, a huge stress on the lung, especially because when you have sick lungs. So that's the kind of patients where you continue to keep the sedation. You discuss maybe continuing the steroids, for instance, for the COVID patients. And where the good moment to start spontaneous breathing is really a difficult call for the clinician. This is what I've heard from so many of our colleagues in critical care. These patients with COVID who are on ventilators are an incredible challenge for so many reasons, some of which you've elucidated beautifully here. So what's the solution here? What would you, as an expert in the field, recommend to be able to help us understand how to detect these dysynchronies? And then what? What do we do? So as we mentioned at the very beginning, I think the future, we will have different solutions which will be automated detection of this dysynchrony because it's uh, 24-7. It occurs often in cluster. So if you're not at the right time, if you're not looking well at the screen, you will miss them. So I would say the first thing when you see something a bit weird on the ventilator, is to try to think at these three moments. Where are we? Are we in this phase where the patient is deeply sedated, where it could be reverse triggering? Is it a situation where the patient is triggering the ventilator? And if yes, is this patient in a situation of high respiratory drive or low respiratory drive? High respiratory drive Well, clinically, you see the patient is using accessory muscles and trying to breathe with high work of breathing. You can use some indexes on the ventilator, like the occlusion pressure, the P01, which is now offered on, I would say, almost all modern ICU ventilators. Some ventilators display breath by breath. Some other, it's a maneuver. And we know when it's the normal value is around one centimeter of water, one or two. So when it's above 3.5, 4, 4.5, it means the drive is very high. And this may be a situation where you have these short cycles and this double triggering. So you need to decide, should I give more ventilation to my patient because he wants more? Or should I give more sedation? And that depends, of course, on what's the priority with the severity of lung injury. And if the patient has a low P01, a low respiratory drive, for instance, below 1, 0.5, something like that, or you can be sure that your patient is receiving too much ventilation compared to his or her needs. So you have to say, okay, I should decrease ventilation or decrease sedation, of course, if sedation is still on board. And that's important because this situation of a patient triggering with a very low drive means the patient is not using the diaphragm enough. This will be a situation creating disuse atrophy of the diaphragm. So in this situation, it's simple. You need to decrease the amount of support even if this results in an increase in respiratory rate because this will be the true respiratory rate of the patient. Gotcha. Other options. 
So a lot has to do with titrating sedation. And it's important to realize the type of sedation you can use and their effect on the drive. Because as we say, the mechanism, whether it's a high drive or low drive, is very important and very different. And obviously, for instance, you can use a drug which does not reduce the drive or very little, like dexmedetomidine. So this will give sedation to the patient if the patient needs sedation, for instance, is agitated, but this will not reduce the drive. By contrast, if you think the drive is too high, you need to use a drug which will decrease the drive like propofol, for instance. So it's important to know how each drug is working. Opioids have complex effects because, uh, of course, opioids can decrease the drive, but sometimes they can have a huge impact on the breathing pattern more than on the drive. So you can have a low respiratory rate, but with huge efforts. So you need to pay attention to which drugs are on board and which one can be used to optimize this interaction. Excellent. What about tools that can actually provide the continuous and real-time monitoring of the asynchronies? I would imagine, you know, clearly the the problem is that not enough physicians have been paying attention uh, to this interaction between patient and ventilator. And so something that would obviously help are tools. So what do you see as the promise here? No, you're absolutely right. This is what we need. And this is where is the paradox because these asynchrony are displayed on the waveforms and they are there. You can see it. But until now, the ventilators did not work at detecting this asynchrony. And I think this will come. I know that several ventilators companies are interested to either detect and uh, diagnose this asynchrony or simply help to better detect when the patient is starting the effort, which would be the right time to trigger the breath, or detecting when it's the good timing for ending the breath, so the good cycling. And I know it will come and it will help enormously. So I think the next generation of ventilators will offer a much better way to deliver physiological assisted ventilation. And in the interim, what should the physicians do? Exactly what you just said, which is there's a lot more hands-on, a lot more having to manage more manually, as it were, and to really, I think more than anything else, be aware of the fact that this asynchrony has great consequence and that they need to know that it's there, be aware and train their team to be able to stay aware and manage it, I guess, in a more granular way. Would you recommend that? Absolutely. And you know, I did not mention that, but the last one I described, which are these ineffective efforts during expiration because the patient is receiving pressure support. It's also associated with a, a specific pattern. Is that the patient tried to go to sleep. And when you go to sleep, you can become apneic because you don't have apnea when you're awake. But when you start to sleep, if you're hyperventilated, you become apneic. And this is something which occurs very often with pressure support ventilation and a slight degree of hyperventilation. So it does not mean you have a PCO2 of 20. It just means that you're a bit alkalotic and your ventilation is a little bit too much. 
And so these patients go to sleep, become apneic, and the apnea induce an arousal or an awakening. And these patients 24-7 continuously try to go to sleep and can never go into a deep sleep. So this may have a lot of clinical consequences. So one very simple thing to detect is when your patient has a low minute ventilation alarm on pressure support, and for instance at night, it's not because the patient is not tolerating pressure support. It's because you give too much ventilation, and this should be detected and known by the clinician. I love it. This is fantastic. Everyone out there who is listening, I would highly recommend Dr. Burchard's excellent article, Monitoring Patient Ventilator Asynchrony, which was in Critical Care Current Opinion, which really describes everything we've been talking about. This was published June of 2016, Volume 22, Number 3 and summarizes the issues at hand. In your crystal ball, as a last thought, Dr. Brochard, when do you think we're going to have these new technical tools and new ventilators to be able to help us? Oh, I'm hopeful this this will come after the end of this pandemic. <laughs> so in a, it should not be years away. I, I hope in the months to come, there will be several options on different ventilators. Excellent. And thank you so much, everyone. We have been speaking with Dr. Laurent Brochard, who is Interdepartmental Division Director of Critical Care at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we have been speaking specifically about asynchronies between patient and ventilator. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Pamela Peek. This podcast is supported by an unrestricted education grant by Medtronic. Pamela M. Peek, MD, MPH, FACP, FACSM, is a nationally renowned physician, scientist, expert, and thought leader in the field of medicine. Dr. Peek is a Pew Foundation scholar in nutrition and metabolism. Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Maryland, holds dual master's degrees in public health and policy, and is a fellow of both the American College of Physicians and the American College of Sports Medicine. Dr. Peak has been named one of America's top physicians by the Consumers Research Council of America. She is a regular in-studio medical commentator for the national networks and an acclaimed TEDx presenter and national keynote speaker. Dr. Peek is a three-time New York Times best-selling author and is a science and health advisor for Apple. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members or that of the podcast commercial supporter.